All right. Well, remember that Mark's gospel emphasizes the fact that Jesus, when he came, he came in the flesh. He was God and he was man at the same time. And so uh, (laughs) what he did was he took on human flesh and then he could relate with us and then he could teach us from a place of authority, not just being God, but also being able to relate to the things that we go through in our lives because he lived a life in front of us. And so um, as we look at that, we notice that Jesus, though he was the son of God, the one life that God gave him, uh, he, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came as uh, a servant and he came to give his life for those that he came to serve. And so he becomes our sin offering. He becomes the one who would pay for our sins. So I've mentioned to you that that theme of service and sacrifice is the one that we're studying. And I I heard a guy teach uh, Mark uh, just this week, and he was talking about, and I don't know why I never thought about this before, but in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we're getting to witness this through the pen of Mark because Mark is emphasizing not so much what was taught in words, although we do see some of that. He doesn't just completely throw it away and only look at what he did. Uh, We get some of the things that he said, but at the same time, we also get to see that he was full of grace and truth, not just in words, but in action. And a lot of us probably struggle with that with people in our lives that they, they have a lot of things that they talk about, but they don't actually live them out. They're their, their feet don't really match what their words say that their faith does. And so rather than you know, God just being on high and not being able to relate to the things that we go through, He came down and He dwelt in flesh as we do. And so as we continue, remember that last week we looked at Jesus rising early in order to pray. And I talked about the fact that when He got up, He got up way before the, the, the sun even came up. And He spent that time, rather than getting extra rest getting refreshed in his father. He spent time with the Lord. He went to the energy source to get recharged, as it were. But as we looked at that, his disciples also, after that, they came looking for him. They wanted to find him. So not only was he being an example to them, they came looking for him, and he was spending time in prayer. But when they found him, they explained that everyone was looking for him because he'd been doing these great miracles and So Jesus explained that it was for this purpose that he came, not just to do miracles, but to go from town to town and preach. And so as we start this week, we'll see that uh, what he had started last week at the end of chapter one was actually going on this preaching tour. We think of guys like Billy Graham going town to town and preaching the good news. Well, he wasn't the starter of that. Jesus was. And and, and he went from town to town and, and he would preach the good news, but he would also heal. He would meet physical needs as well as spiritual. And we talked about the fact that most of the time when he does meet a physical need, oftentimes it's in order to have an avenue to reach those that maybe they wouldn't be able to reach any other way. And so as we see, we only know our physical needs, but oftentimes we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, will you deal with me in this physical need? Will you heal me of this sickness? Will you help me with this uh, financial trouble? And he's like, yes, I will. But First and foremost, let's deal with the spiritual problem that you have. And sometimes he uses that in order to knock down idols in our lives and say, hey, you know, 
he didn't promise us health and wealth. What he did promise us was life abundant in him. And so during his travels from town to town, preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God, a leper came to him asking him to be made clean. And Jesus proceeded to cleanse and to touch him. Now, once the word got out about that leper being cleansed, remember, he told him, don't tell anybody. And we, we looked at the reasons why he might have told them, don't tell everybody, because it hindered him from being able to travel as freely. And also, it might actually cause people that shouldn't be hearing about it to come and try to find him and, and try to kill him prematurely. So, um, since he did have a time to die, but it wasn't yet. And so, rather than go and you know, preach the fact that he was this healer and get all these people coming out to see the, uh, the magic show, as it were, he wanted to be known for preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So once the word got out about the leper being cleansed, many sought out Jesus uh, to the point that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city because of the great numbers that came to find him from every direction. And the news traveled very quickly. Which brings us to chapter 2, verse 1, where we start this week. And it says, Again, he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. <laughs> Jesus in the house. I, I, I just thought that was interesting because when someone that is, you know, you, you mention their name and people are like, oh, he's, he's in town. Oh, wow. You know, some famous person. Well, they knew that Jesus was in the house. And, uh, but when he entered in Capernaum, it says there, uh, remember, we talked about that already. He kind of set up his headquarters there and it's, it's kind of his home base. He goes out preaching and then he comes back to a home base and when he gets there, he goes to Peter's house, which is where he was staying before. Verse 2, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus comes back, his first spell of traveling and preaching throughout the region of Galilee, when it was heard that Jesus was in the house. Immediately, many gathered there. Now, my first question was, well, how many? Well, it says so many that there was no longer room in the house and even the door was blocked. There was a lot of people there. Now, I don't know about you guys. My house isn't huge. So if Jesus was at my house, and this was my circumstance, and they were filling the house, we could fit quite a few people in there to the point where it would block the door, but not as many people could get to him as we would probably like. You know, It's ironic to me that we can fill a stadium, we can rent a stadium out and pay for it in order for you two to show up. And I don't know what YouTube tickets go for these days, but it's like $100, $150 for like general admission. Well, people will pay that. But in this particular venue, there wasn't enough room for very many people. And so the door was even blocked. There wasn't any ushers making sure there was plenty of a lane so many people could get in. There wasn't an entrance fee. People were just there because they had these needs. And so it doesn't say that he, he, let's see, he preached the truth of God to them, and it does not say what he taught. And uh, I'm, I'm sometimes bummed when that happens. It's like, it says that he preached the word to them. I want to hear the Bible study. There's this uh, part at the end of the gospel, and I think it's after Jesus actually um, 
was buried and he resurrected and they, they saw him for 40 days. And these two men were walking along the road and it says that while they were walking, they didn't recognize Jesus, but he expounded the scriptures to them. Well, what did he teach them? I want to know that Bible study. But the good news is, is I think that we'll be able to hear that Bible study if we ask him in heaven. At least that's my hope. I, I, I'm just like, okay, what did he see as the most important to teach those guys? But it doesn't say here what, he, what it actually had been taught. Um, but what it does say is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 that we already studied that he preached. He preached, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. So perhaps the most important thing here is what was going on behind the scenes and not so much what he taught. Um, during Jesus' Bible study, a man was being carried. Behind the scenes, there's this man being carried for, we don't know how far, it doesn't say where he came from, but these four men were so concerned with his physical well-being that they were willing to carry him to the point where they could be with this Jesus that they heard that could cure him. Now, when they get there, they, they're a little bummed because the whole place is so packed. And so what they do is they somehow get on the roof, not just get on the roof, but they take this man up there on his bed. Now, I don't know about you guys. I'm not a, fair, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of heights, let alone when I'm laying on a bed. I don't think they had those stretchers where they lock your neck in and they strap you down. They probably, you know, I'm just picturing them carrying him on like maybe a piece of cloth. You know, I don't, it doesn't say what they were carrying him in. That's just conjecture. But what they do is they get him all the way up to the roof. And this isn't a roof like you or I would have. This isn't, a, you know, they didn't have some peak that was covering the roof where you, you know, you get up there and it's such a big angle. What they had was these houses that were kind of more like what you'd see uh, if you've ever been to Mexico or something like that, like a, an adobe house where it has a flat top. And they would use natural materials. They would use grasses. They would use, you know, sticks and, and branches. And then they would, from what I understand, they would cover them with, with mud. They would make this cake mixture and not so wet that it would drip, but not so dry that it would crack and fall apart. So it would have this wet kind of concrete mix and seal. So what these guys had to do was, first of all, get all the way up there. Who knows if there was a ladder or a tree close. But either way, it's hard to get that guy up there, right? And then they dig through the ceiling to the point where they get down to the thatch. But it says there that <clears throat> when they dropped him through, they dropped him through on his bed. So I'm assuming that either this is a big house or most of the roof was destroyed. They were willing to destroy someone's house. So this man, and I think it was Peter's house, so this man could see Jesus for the first time and hopefully have his practical physical need met. And since he was a paralytic, you know, walking is something we kind of take for granted. And so they take him, they're concerned for him. Uh, they're concerned enough to do something about it. That's mercy, by the way, compassion and action, not just seeing a need and going, oh, I feel for you, I'll pray for you, but actually being able to be there with that person in that need. So as the, he's there with that person in that need, these four guys get him up there, they take him through, and they drop him down to Jesus. Imagine their surprise when the first thing that Jesus does is he notices the faith, notice it's the faith of the four men that brought him. He notices the faith of the men that brought him and notice my surprise when, and probably theirs too, when he goes, your sins are forgiven. Now you could imagine these four guys, they're like, we just went through all this so you'd heal him. 
What do you mean his sins are forgiven? It doesn't say that they were upset. Um, But what happens sometimes is we have people in our lives that have practical needs and we pray for them. And God tells us to. He says, I want you to be a blessing to people. And, And the best way that we can be a blessing is by speaking to God on their behalf if they don't know the Lord and giving them an opportunity to be blessed by Him so that hopefully they will not only have their physical need met, but they will also have their spiritual need met. Now, if this man had been healed of his paralysis and walked out the door right then, the fact of the matter is is that he wouldn't have a Savior, he wouldn't have his sins forgiven, he'd walk the rest of his life, and who knows what would happen. He could spend eternity in hell, but have his legs working. So Jesus here doesn't minister to his physical need right away. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Oftentimes we'll pray for somebody for physical healing. And what God does is he uses that to get them into the doors or get them into your house, get them to church because they're crying out, Lord, whoever, somebody help me. And then God's able to meet them in that need. But it doesn't mean always that he's going to first of all, first and foremost, and it doesn't always mean that he's going to heal them. He was using that circumstance to bring them to his feet. And so this happens here. His sins are forgiven him. And whether he realizes that or not, that's the biggest thing that we have to deal with, our separation from God. So these four men do this, and whether they realize it or not, they've been a bigger blessing to him than anybody else, any doctor, any person could be. The cool thing is that it was the four men's faith that they notice. But J. Vernon McGee said about this, he said, Now, friend, if you ever listen to Christian radio, you hear J. Vernon McGee, and you instantly know who it is, whether you, they introduce him or not. He said, There are many people who are not going to receive the message of salvation unless you lift a corner of their stretcher and carry them to the place where they can hear the word of the Lord. They are paralyzed immobilized by sin and by many other things the world holds for them. Some are paralyzed by prejudice and others by indifference. They're never going to hear Jesus say to them, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee, unless you take the corner of their stretcher and bring them to Jesus. So verse 6, Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies? Like this, who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke chapter 5 verse 17 says that on this occasion, he was teaching there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come from every town of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. And Jesus' fame had spread so widely that Pharisees and scribes from all over the land had come to investigate him. Now, their response to what Jesus was doing was partially correct. We need to be sure that we notice this. There is no one who can forgive sins but God. That being the case, Jesus is God, so he wasn't speaking blasphemies. So on one part, they were right. We always you know, see the scribes and the Pharisees, and oftentimes we just kind of go, well, those guys are just, they're missing the point completely. Well, not completely, because in this case, they were right. Only God can forgive sins but Jesus is God. So they should have maybe, maybe their ears should have perked up. And I don't know that mine would have. I don't know that I would have been, well, this guy's probably not, you know, they've probably seen more blasphemers that were trying to, or claiming to be God than they had actually seen God. You know, this is the first time. So, but what I want to notice there is that 
sins first and foremost that we commit, we always like to say sorry to the people that maybe we've sinned against, but they're first and foremost against God because he's the one that raised the standard. He's the one that gave the law. He's the one that sets the standard. And so when we ask for forgiveness, the first place we should go for that is from him. An example can be found in Psalm chapter 51 where David He's repenting to God for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. David had committed this sin against God, and he says that in Psalm 51 verse 4. It says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. We also know, however, that David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, his sin also affected Uriah because when he was trying to cover it up, what did he do? He murdered Bathsheba's husband, to make it look like everything was a-okay. Not only did he commit adultery with Uriah's wife, but in order to cover up his sin, David ends up murdering Uriah by ordering to be sent into battle where he would be killed because he was so close to the enemy. Adultery and murder were a result of David not obeying the commands of God. So his sins were against God first and foremost, but as a result of disobeying God's command, he sinned against man. That's always the case. God gives us these commands so that we can have a right relationship with Him, and that will translate into having right relationships with those that we know. Other Christians, unbelievers, those in our families, you know, all, all people. And so right before their eyes, Jesus in, is in effect boldly asserting to them, I am God. So if we can only be forgiven of sins by God, and, and even David saw that, so the only way to deal with that is to have his forgiveness. <clears throat> Verse 8, But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately, verse 12 says, he, he took up his bed, he went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus knew the thoughts and the intents of the scribes. They hadn't even said anything out loud according to this passage. It just says there in verse 6 that they were reasoning in their hearts. The book of Hebrews mentions this ability of the Word of God. Remember, we just mentioned that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. So if He is the Word, and in the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God, then Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh like we just read. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13 is not just speaking about the Bible that we carry. It's one and the same. Jesus and the Bible, they're the same. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So sin is not unnoticed by God. He can see all. So here we have a perfect example of that fact. Jesus knew the thoughts 
and the intents of their hearts because of that, he asked them a question. Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Now, he's probably knowing that they had reason in their hearts. It says there that he did. He knew. And I'm sure he already knew why they reasoned in their hearts. He was asking them a question that he already knew the answer to, but he wanted them to think it through. You know, don't you see that your thoughts here, they're deceiving you. You're evil in your hearts. But they never get a chance to answer. Jesus doesn't give them a chance to answer. He asks them the question so they actually think about it. You know, maybe they hadn't before. He gets straight to the answer to their question. Remember their question was, who can forgive sins but God alone? And he answers their question in a way that he often answers most of the scribes and Pharisees' questions. By asking them a question. By getting them to think. Oftentimes we ask someone a question and they give us the answer. We don't really learn anything from it. So what he wants them to do is go through the thought process. Which is easier to say? <clears throat> your sins are forgiven you? Or rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, let me ask you that question because it's a good question. Which would be easier? Number one, your sins are forgiven. Or rise, take up your bed and walk? The first one? If you were surrounded by a group of people, and the key word there is, which is easier to say? Because it's easier to say, not rise, take up your bed and walk, but your sins are forgiven you because no one can tell whether or not that's actually taken place. But if we're sitting in this room here and I ask you which one's easier, well, it's obviously easier to say that because if I say rise, take up your bed and walk, and the guy lays there... <laughs> Anybody can do that, right? So that's the answer. Jesus commanded here the man to rise, take up his bed, and go to his house. He did not say to the man, rise, see if you can walk, and we'll get you some physical therapy. <laughs> what he said was, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And as he said that, you'll notice that it happened immediately. The healing was a miracle. Now, often things, times we attribute things we call them miracles that really aren't. In this case, it seems that a miracle is something that's immediate, number one, and number two, perfect. When God does a work, it's immediate and it's perfect. Now notice that Jesus has a reason for this miracle, and that reason is not so that he can become famous or that other people would want to come see miracles. Actually, the reason is so that the Pharisees and the scribes would know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth. Isn't that amazing? This man came to have his life, his physical being, healed of paralysis. And what he got was his sins forgiven. And had these scribes and Pharisees not been there, do you think Jesus would have healed him? I can't say yes or no. I don't know. Obviously, that's not the way it went down, but that was just the thought that I had. I'm kind of guessing that the guy that was laying there on the floor was going, praise the Lord for scribes and Pharisees. They caused God to go, you know what, I'm going to do something and show these guys something. And because of that, they got blessed. I don't know if there's any application there, but that was just kind of something I was thinking about. Notice also the result of the miracle. We live in a day and age where we want to see something. We want to experience something. And God does, in fact, do things that we can see and experience, but that's not his main work. Do you know what his main work is? It's to bring glory to his Father. Notice the result of the miracle is all were amazed and they glorified God. 
They had never seen anything like what Jesus had done. And that should always be the result of the miracle. If you see a miracle take place or what you perceive to be a miracle, and what it does is it causes the focus to shift onto some man or some person. Know that it's not a miracle of God because miracles of God give glory to God. They cause people to worship God. Matthew 5 verse 16 says, when he's teaching his disciples, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So verse 13, then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them as he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. I'm going to get a drink. No, that is not a tall boy. That's an iced tea. (laughs) Don't want to stumble anybody in here. It had to be said. What? Raspberry, actually. Hmm. Anyway, (laughs) where were we? Sorry about that. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he rose, and he followed him. So Jesus simply walks into Levi's, or we also know him as Matthew. He's the one that wrote the gospel according to Matthew. But he walks into Levi's place of business here, and he says, follow me. In Luke chapter 5, verse 28, it says Levi's response was that he, number one, left all, He rose up and he followed him. Now, unlike Peter, we really don't get much of his backstory. Seems like Jesus had already had an experience with Peter, meeting him while he was with John the Baptist. But in this case, it seems like Levi comes out of the middle of nowhere. He's walking along the sea and he sees this man. Now, notice there that when God looks at us through the eyes of Jesus, he sees us, individual people. He sees a man or a woman. Or a young child, he, he sees us in our humanity and he reaches out and he, he does that. He, he calls us and he says, follow me. It's really no different than the disciples that he called. What we do know, however, is that Levi was a tax collector, or sometimes it's referred to as a publican. And think about the disciples that Jesus has chosen so far. I think it's funny. Four fishermen, he starts out with four fishermen, and he picks up all these guys along the, the sea there. Uh, but it seems crazy enough that he would pick four fishermen since fishermen aren't really known for their, what would we call them, people skills. They're not really known for their people skills. They're really known for their, their lying, their fish stories, and, uh, <laughs> and smelling like fish all the time. But uh, So to add some spice to the mix, Jesus finds a tax collector, definitely not the, pe- uh, the mix of people that most of us would think to, to put together. A tax collector wasn't the run-of-the-mill accountant like we would think of. Somebody that crunches numbers all the time, got a big suit on, sits in his office. He's there from sunup to way past sundown working on numbers during tax season. It's not the person we think of when we go through Walmart, we go to Jackson Hewitt, and we get somebody to do our taxes there. And you know, This is not the, the tax collector we're thinking of. They don't have all these forms. They would have a certain amount of money that these men worked for Rome, And they would have a certain amount of money to get from every family. And they would go out and collect it. And if you didn't have it, they would make sure that you would find it. They they would pursue you. They would hunt you down so you would give them the money that you owe them. 
It was more like a mob mentality, really, than a, uh, than a tax collecting agency. This was, you know, we, we often complain about our IRS, but it's really not that bad in comparison to this situation. We like to think about the, that the IRS has it out for us, but it's really, it's not always great, but I mean, it's not like this. Now, each year they had a certain amount of, they'd, amount of money they'd collect, but Rome didn't care as long as they got their cut of money. So they would send these men out there and they would go to these towns and they would collect money. Now, as they would collect the money, they would also add a little bit on top. They were known for trying to get a little bit of money out of the people. Uh, yes, illegally, but Rome didn't care as long as they got paid, and they didn't really hold the guys accountable except to what they owed them. So they would skim a little bit off the top, add a little bit to the, the bottom line, and they'd you know, line their pockets with the extra money. It's kind of, you know, it's filthy lucre, obviously, but it's, it's money, right? You know, a lot of people spend their, their time trying to get more money these guys just had a, a more direct way to do it. So Jesus is picking a very unpopular guy. Notice here also that the Jews hated, absolutely abhorred tax collectors because, number one, they're tax collectors. But number two, Levi here, his name is Levi, which implies possibly that he was of the lineage of the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And because of that, he was supposed to be working in the temple as a servant there, ministering to the needs of the tabernacle and the temple. So he's a turncoat. He's a traitor. He's, he's given up his godly heritage in order to be a worker for Rome. And because of that, all of his people hate him. So he's, he's not like the likely guy that you'd want to pick for a popularity contest. So for whatever reason, it seems that Levi was willing, though, to leave all and to follow Jesus. Whatever the reason, I would assume that whatever he knew about Jesus was more promising than the lifestyle that Levi had already chosen for himself. Seems like when Jesus came to him and said, follow me, Levi was already contemplating leaving and going somewhere else. This way at least gave him a place to go. And uh, he had no doubt heard what Jesus had been up to. So, um, you know, what did he have to lose, right? So verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Luke's account says that Levi, after leaving all and following Jesus, gave Jesus a great feast in his own house, and that there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. This would make sense. Since tax collectors weren't well favored by anyone in their society, who, are they going to help? who else are they going to hang out with except themselves? They all kind of get together and, you know, they have their own little clique, as it were. But uh, Levi's so excited that he's, you know, he's got this new friend, Jesus. Not only is he being called, but Jesus is calling him and he, he goes and follows him. And Levi's so excited, he goes to home and he throws this big, large feast, a party to honor Jesus, I'm assuming. What good is a distinguished guest unless you have lots of people to be distinguished about? Unless you have a lot of people to show? Seems like he was so excited about this newfound friend that he, was, he, he invited everybody over to his house. 
So the scribes and the Pharisees' reaction to this scene is one of disgust. They would never be seen with tax collectors and sinners, let alone eat with them. You see, they missed the point. Jesus' response to them is that those who are well have are no need of a physician, and those who are sick need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was using what many would call, um, I think I've heard it called, sanctified sarcasm. See, when he used the word righteous to these guys, he didn't really mean that they were righteous. He, didn't, he wasn't saying to the Pharisees, you know, you guys are righteous, you wouldn't know. Like, we, we've got issues and, you know, they need me, but you don't so much because you do all these good works. What he's saying to them is, hey, look, if you don't see that you have a spiritual problem here, then I didn't come for you. I didn't come to save you if you don't think you need saving. What do you tell a drowning man that refuses a raft? You look at him and go, Lord bless you. You know, I hope you come to the realization that you really are drowning. Because at that point, I'll still be here waiting for you. And sometimes what happens is people wait so long, they don't realize that they need a life vest, and they drown. Their own pride and their own thinking that they're in the right spot, that they can swim, they, I can take this situation, I can handle it, causes them to ultimately drown and die. So in this case, he's just telling them, if you can't see a, the problem that you have, then I don't know what to tell you. This man, Levi, has been blessed by me, and so he's invited all his friends not just the good ones. He's not trying to impress me. He knows where he came from. He's bringing all the people that were in his spot because he can relate to them. And that's what we have. That's, what we, that's all we have to offer is our brokenness. Our old life where we knew all the people that we knew in the old life. And what God does is he uses us to reach those people. That's why he saved us in the first place. And not only that, but the result is that he gets the glory because he uses us to reach sinners you know, you think about going to church every week. It's a good thing. We need to get filled up. We need to be fed by God's word. We need to fellowship and encourage one another. But the problem is, is that we need to share Jesus with those that haven't heard. Oftentimes, the only time you hear the name of Jesus or someone praising the Lord is within the body of Christ, inside the doors, in our holy huddle. But what God's saying is, you were saved for a purpose. I came to you. Now you go to them. Imitate me. And, and you'll, you'll reach those people. Paul reminds us of this same fact in 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> I was reading this passage last night, and I, I really didn't know how to end up with, you know, kind of make my point at the end. And, and, but you think about the Apostle Paul. Everyone's heard of the Apostle Paul if they've read the Bible even in a, a minute amount. He wrote two, you know, a third or what is it, two-thirds of the, the New Testament. But what we know about Paul is, is all of the things that God used him to do. Oftentimes we put him in stained glass, we put a halo on him, and we go, look at the Apostle Paul, look how much he did. But the matter of the fact, excuse me, the fact of the matter is that the Apostle Paul was just a man like you and I. He was a sinner. He was in need of mercy. God reached out to him and he spoke to him in a very miraculous way. But what happened is the result is, is that Paul knew where he came from. And because of that, he was able to reach many. Not because he thought he made it, not because he thought he was great, but because he knew that God was great. So I, I, I'm going to ask you guys to turn to 1 Timothy. It's a couple of chap or books to the right. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, Paul gives his testimony. His testimony of the grace of God. Verse 12 says, He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent, which just means a violently arrogant man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So he thanks Christ Jesus who has enabled him to be used although he was the former person that he was. When, when Jesus called Paul, do you know what he was doing? He wasn't collect, collecting taxes. He was going out and persecuting Christians to the point of murdering them. But by God's grace, what happens is Jesus shows him who he really is, who he's really persecuting, and he turns it around to get the glory. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in him, Christ Jesus. That's Paul's personal experience. It's his personal testimony of the Lord on his life. And here's the resulting message that Paul preaches. Because of that, in light of that, verse 15 says, this is a faithful saying, and he's teaching one of his disciples, Timothy, here. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul had the realistic view of who he was. And so because of that, he knew he was the chief of all sinners. And so because of that, he wanted to reach his own kind, sinners. He knew that that's who he was called to. Because he had a realistic view of himself. The mercy of God on Paul was something he points out to Timothy in the very next verse, verse 16. However, for this reason I obtain mercy. Now this is the reason. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees missed out. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't know why God gave them the scriptures. God gave them his oracles, his law, so that in them, because if they really had a true realistic viewpoint of themselves, they'd missed the mark so many times and failed so many times, and yet God continued to show them mercy. He continued to show them grace. He didn't pick them because they were great. He picked them because he could get the most glory from them. So it says there that God forgave Paul and showed mercy on him. He didn't, give him. he didn't give Paul what he deserved. And then surely he is willing to forgive me and I can trust him for eternal life too. That's what example Paul had to offer. He had to offer his example of being a broken man in need of grace and mercy. Now I can't end this portion that Paul writes to Timothy without reading the last verse in verse 17 because out of all that, having, number one, the realistic viewpoint of who Paul really was without Christ, number two, noticing the mercy that God showed him, the result of that not only was him reaching out and, and visiting and meeting others in their time of need, but it was also verse 17, which is what we call a doxology. In high church, it's kind of this memorized thing that gets sung. But with Paul here, he worships who God is. He has joy in the person of Jesus Christ. 
He says there in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The result of God's mercy on a man's life or a woman's life is that they have joy and peace in who he is. And then they also give him the glory. It's really no different than the miracle that happened with the paralyzed man. When he was healed, the result was they were in awe of who he was. They'd never seen anything like it before, but they worshiped and they gave glory to God. The same is true for you and I. When we realize who we are without Christ, we realize what he has done in us because of Christ, because of the death on the cross, because of him purchasing our salvation and paying for our sins. The result is worship, joy, peace in Him. And then circumstances are just something that we have to deal with in daily life. In light of our salvation, none of the rest of it really, the rest of it pales in comparison. So Father, thank You so much. Thank You that You desired to pay for our sins, to condescend to our place of wretchedness and our place of brokenness so that we could become the righteousness of God. He gave us His righteousness, and He paid for our sins so that we could worship. And Lord, I pray that we would become a group that would worship You, because not because we think we're holy because of us, but because we realize the grace that we've been given, the free gift of, of salvation. And Lord, may that cause us to see the others that we live around and, uh, and to, to give them the, the same hope that we have, that we could invite those that we know that don't know you, not only to church, but, but also to, to hear of your great work in our lives. Lord, may our lives be a worship song to you. May they be a testimony that brings you glory. And may others come to know a personal relationship with you, the forgiveness of sin in your Son. So, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I just pray that you would continue to minister to us, in us, and through us tonight, Lord, as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.